The title of tonight's message is Insufficient Funds. Insufficient Funds. We're, we're not going to preach a message. We're not going to preach a message about how to, how to increase your bank account or how the church is, is uh, the next big fi Fortune 500 company. You know, you guys, all of the pastors are gone, but this is not the substitute teacher filling in. I promise you, you're going to hear something good. Open up, if you will, to Exodus 6. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will make you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. The position in which God called us. We were under the yoke of Egyptians. We were slaves to them. It took mighty acts of judgment to redeem us from the position that we are in. The Lord had to do a miraculous thing in each and every one of our lives, didn't He? Yes. To bring us from the situation that we were in before we came to the Lord. I mean... Come on now. Most of us came from the most pitiful situations. The most unworthy circumstance. The most broken homes. I, don't, I was right there with them. I came from, from a hopeless situation. Thinking that I was right with the Lord. But absolutely miserable in my sin. Turn with me to Ezekiel 16. Verse 3. guys are faster than I am. Ezekiel 16, verse 3. This gives us a picture of what our life was like before we came to the Lord. And say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the, in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Can you, just, can you say that that doesn't mix well? On the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to make you clean. Nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field. For on the day you were born, you were despised. This is a picture of our lives before we came to the King of Kings. We were like children without a mother. Children without a father. Despised. Completely. Cut. Completely and thrown into an open field. Verse 6, Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live. I made you grow like a plant in the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Stop right there. The Lord found us in a despicable place. The Lord found us in a place where we were contemptible. And He looked at you and He said, Live. And the moment that you heard the word of the Lord, you lived. You came alive. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your transgressions, but you were made alive through Christ Jesus. Amen. Psalm 34, 2. Flip over there with me. Psalm 34, 2 says, My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of these troubles. Anybody can identify with that? Yeah. 
You could say, this poor man called and the Lord came and he delivered me out of my troubles. Never believe the Christianity that says that you were all right, you were pretty, you were nice, you were perfect, you were seeking God your entire life, and then one day he just spoke to you. That is a lie. You cannot come to Christ that way. It is impossible. Christ found every single one of us in a poor, miserable condition. We were poor men. Then we called out and he answered. John 3.16, you're familiar with it. But show us the kind of love that only God can have for a world such as this. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Come on. Come on, somebody. I know that that verse has been used and used and used and used to the point where it has no effect almost. But it is still the word of God. He loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes with the intent of trusting, whoever believes with the intent of following, whoever believes with the intent of giving him his everything will not perish but have eternal life. We were on a path to death and destruction. And the Lord redeemed us. John 10, 9. John 10, 9 says that I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pastor. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Man, the Lord has come so that you would have life and life to the full. Let this be clear. There is no life outside of Christ Jesus. There's none, none at all. If Jesus Christ came to give life, then it must be that there was no life before he came. Yeah. Am I right? Yes. There is a deception going on. Trying to, trying to sell outright lies to people into believing that there's a life outside of Christ Jesus. And it's not true. Before we came to Christ, we had no life. We were living in death. Flip over with me to 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 9 through 11. It says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? What? What? Does he really have to say, Do you not know this? And then look what he says next. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Why does he have to say do not be deceived? Because we have a tendency to be deceived. We have a tendency to be deceived into thinking... That we can live whatever way we want to live. And the Lord, the King of Kings, is still going to be pleased with our lifestyle. And it's not true. The warning is clear. Do you not know the wicked will will not inherit the kingdom of God? But look at verse 11. And that is what some of you were. That is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were made holy. You were justified, credited with righteousness, even though you were these things. In Romans it speaks, Now to him who justifies the ungodly. We were in a wicked, monstrous, sinful state. And we were justified before God in His sight. As if we were never, as if we had never sinned at all. Now turn with me to 1 Peter For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life 
handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Oh, do you hear that? It was not with perishable things like silver and gold that you were taken away from your empty way of life. Any of you familiar with empty ways of lives? What I caught here was something extraordinary. Talks about an empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. What is he talking about? What, for, what, what forefather handed you an empty way of life? Who is he talking about here? Anybody know? Who? Possibly. Seems to me that in First uh, Peter, verse 1, says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. Who is God's elect? Israel. Do you mean to tell me that Peter is standing, Peter is writing as a Jew to Jews and talking to them about their empty way of life handed down to them by their forefathers? Yes. How is that so? You know, I wrote down some scriptures, and I'm, we're not going to go too far into them tonight. But if we were to teach on the call of God and the promise of God to Israel, we would read passages like Romans 3.1 says, What advantage is there in, in being a Jew? Or what value, value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. Or we would read Ephesians 1.11 that says, In Him we, the Jews, were chosen, predestined, who were the first to hope. Or how about Romans 1.16 where it talks about salvation being first for the Jew and then for the, the Greek. What about Romans 2.10? It says there will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the what? Jew. Jew. What about Romans 10.4? Where it spells it all. How could Peter be writing to the Jews who were the first to hope in God, who were the first to receive and talk to them about their empty way of life? Because in Romans 10.4 it says, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Note, it's not saying that the law discontinued. Not saying that we don't have to live by the law. It's not what it's saying. The Greek word there for end is teleos. It means the culmination of the law. It means the end result of the law. It means the point at which the law was aiming at. So to the Jews, the moment that Christ came, the, 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 the obedience and the way that they, they obeyed the law ended. The lifestyle was empty the moment that Christ showed up on the scene. Christ was the end of the law. If Christ is the end of the law, how much should He be the end of our empty ways of life? We're talking about the Jews and their empty way of life. But how much more are our lives empty? How much more did He redeem us from our empty lives? We, did, we had no promise of redemption as the Jews have. We had no, no, none of the oracles in the words of God as the Jews have. And yet... He still redeemed us from our empty way of life. How much more was our, our life empty? How much more? Christ ought to be the end of us too. He redeemed us with the precious blood of the Lamb. When I think of those two things, you know, this word came to me because I'm just like everyone else. I have a tendency to forget about what the Lord has done in my life. And therefore, I have a tendency to start thinking and start acting and start going back to my empty way of life. I have a, tendency, I have a tendency to sit there and, and think about what, man, remember the olden days. What was it like before I got born again? Man, I was carefree. I didn't have a care in the world. And yet it cost the Lord something. He redeemed us not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without spot or defect. I want to talk to you a little bit about that blood. And I want to make a statement. 
See, Peter's saying that that blood is precious. I want to say it's the costliest thing that is ever, this world has ever seen. Turn with me to Hebrews 9, chapter 7, verse 14. We're going to talk about how costly that blood is. Hebrews 9, verse 7. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Did you hear that? He had to offer blood for himself before he went in. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? He went into the tabernacle that was not man-made. He went into the heavenly tabernacle. Verse 12, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, But he entered the most holy place once and for all by who? His own blood. Having obtained what? Eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished. Say unblemished unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God oh come on somebody the blood of goats and bulls can only cleanse for a moment they can only make you outwardly clean they cannot make you inwardly clean and it makes the statement that the blood of Jesus secured eternal redemption how could it be so how could the blood of Jesus Secure eternal redemption for us. It's because it is the blood of the divine one, the holy one, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the promised Messiah. It is the divine blood, the one who was perfect, the one who never sinned, the one who did righteousness every single time. It is that blood that was shed for you. It was the costliest thing that the world has ever seen. Can you imagine the angels standing around while the father is slaughtering his son and that precious blood is spilling on the ground. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the angels watching as Jesus goes through the heavenly tabernacle and presents his own blood to cleanse the tabernacle itself? Can you imagine that? All that blood was shed for us. That blood was shed for us. DJ, that blood was shed for you. Michael, that blood was shed for you. Peter, that blood was shed for you. It was the costliest thing that has ever been purchased with. Ephesians 2, 12 through 13. Makes an astounding statement. Considering the fact that we were like a child who was, who was born and then thrown into a field writhing in our own blood. Ephesians 2.12. Sorry. I'm in Galatians. Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in this world. Come on, you Gentiles. Without hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. He shed that precious blood so that you can be brought near to Him. Not so that you can stay far away. Romans 5. Verse 6. 
says that you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. Was that possible in our circumstance? Not at all. Because we've already made the, the, the claim that none of us were good. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? Oh, if you've been justified by His blood, how much more will you be saved through God's wrath? He shed that blood so that you could be brought near. Not only brought near so that you could be justified. Not only justified that you would be saved from God's wrath. And it was not something that Christ waited for you to respond to. He shed it without a promise of you responding. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine Christ saying, before a, before a single soul steps up and receives this, I'm going to make the first step and I'm going to shed my own blood. Could you imagine that? It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible the cost that was prayed, paid for us. If we were to read a little bit further in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you can turn there. Right? says that you were bought at a price. You were bought at a price, church. You were bought at a price. What was that price? What was that price? It was the thing that was the most precious to God, the blood of His Son. There was a price set for you. You're not just here by happenstance. You're not just here by, by, by coincidence. There was a price set for you. And Christ met that price. Revelation 5.9 says, And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He is worthy because with his blood he purchased men for God. He purchased men for God. He purchased men for God. The Lord did not purchase us with cheap materials. He did not purchase us with cheap tender so that we can give him a cheap response. The Lord did not slap a little bit of money down and say, you know what, that's how much he's worth for me. Instead, he paid the highest price, the most precious thing that he could offer, and that was his blood. It is as if the Lord went all in in such a way that you could never repay him He went all in in such a way that would cause you to go bankrupt. He paid the high price that no one could ever pay. Oh man, any of you guys ever, ever have somebody step up and just pay for a meal for you? What does that feel like? What does it feel like when, when, when you, you go to lunch, you're standing there thinking about what you want to order and somebody hands the cashier, their card that says, he's with me. What does that do to you? Is that something inside of you? No, 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 let me get myself. Let me take care of it. I, I can, no, 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 well, well, let me, I'll get you the next time. How about that? How about I repay you in such a way? Does the person that paid for it want such a thing? No. And yet something inside of us wants Something inside of us is uncomfortable with that. I can't stand here. I can't stand here in this place and tell you that I am entirely comfortable with the King of Kings paying that price for me. Doesn't it mess with you a little bit? Doesn't it trouble you a little bit? Doesn't it make you a little bit uncomfortable to think of the fact of where you were, the empty way of life that you live, and the price that God Almighty paid for you? Doesn't it trouble you? Doesn't it cause you to think, what can I do? What can I pay back? What, what, what must be done? 
I don't know about you, but it troubles me thinking about what he had to go through to gain someone like me. And what can I offer the King of Kings? be honest with you, on, the, on, on my best day, if that, I'm just firmly holding on. Not even firmly. I'm just holding on. Holding on to a promise God gave me. On my best day. And I tell you how often that happens? I'm preaching this message because this occurred to me. I am here in this church in the most fired up body I've ever seen. And I find myself thinking about my old way of life, thinking about my old friends, thinking about the things I used to do, thinking about the, the, the band I used to play in, thinking about you know, where they are now, and thinking about, oh, I could be with them right now. I could, be, I could be playing shows, and I could be having a carefree life. Oh, how it escapes us. It escapes us, the price that he paid. We lose sight of that so clearly. We need to pray, oh God, open our eyes so that we remember the price you paid for us. He paid such a high price that we could never repay. And yet, we return to the world and our empty ways of life. Turn with me to Numbers 11, verse 4 through 5. Say there when you're there. Oh, how easy it is to return to the empty way. Verse 4. The rabble. The rabble. With them began to crave other food. And again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. How often do we go through in our daily lives thinking about how we had it in Egypt? How often do we go back home every day and we go back home to an Egypt every day? Do you have an Egypt that you go back to every day? Is there an Egypt that you have tucked away somewhere in your itinerary for the day that you go back to every day? Do you dream about Egypt before you pray? Do you have an Egypt within you? Well, come on, think about that. I'm not just talking about going back to the places we live, folks. I'm talking about, do we have a little bit of the world that we are enjoying and craving? A little bit of the world that we are feeding off of and that is our, that is our food that we're longing after. Psalm 73 Psalm 73, verse 1 through 4. It says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Oh, yes, He is. Oh, God is good to those who are pure in heart. You know that for a fact. You know that to be true. If you've walked in godliness for any time, you know that God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. In verse 12, it says, This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Are you living the type of lifestyle in the light of what Jesus Christ has done for you and the light of the price He's paid and all you could care about is living a carefree life? All you can care about are the pleasures that you can get after you've done what you think you, you have ought to done. Is there something inside of us that craves a carefree, carefree life? I'll say yes. I know within me, there are times when, when I lose sight of how good God is to Israel. And I start straying. I start thinking about, oh, how easy it would be if I had a carefree life. Oh, if I didn't have to go out to war every day. Oh, if I didn't have to go out and get this manna every day. Oh, man, if I could just be back in Egypt. If I could just be back where they, they, they stuck leeks and onions in my mouth all day long. And I got fat and I was as lazy as could be. Life was easy. I had no responsibilities. I didn't have to do anything. Oh, if I could just go back. 
Oh, how tempting it is to go back to the cares of this world. To go to a place where there is no struggles, where our bodies are healthy and strong. I want to tell you, a call to walk with Christ is a call to go to the cross. And a call to go to the cross is a call to lose everything in your life. And a call to lose everything in your life is a call to be broken and empty before the King of Kings. We mustn't, we mustn't be tempted with a carefree life. Luke 9, verse 61, gives us a warning. Probably one of the most solemn things I've read. Luke 9, verse 61 through 62. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. How did Jesus reply? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. No one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back towards their old life is fit for the kingdom of God. I want to tell you that Jesus sees every time we look back. Jesus sees every time our heads turn a certain direction. He sees every time our, our hearts are staring at something we're not supposed to be staring at. He sees every time we have our eye on something of the world and we're longing after it. He sees that. In 1 John 2.15... says, do not love the world or anything in the world. What does that mean? To be honest with you, what does that mean? Do not love the world or what? Anything. Anything in the world. What does that mean? Does that mean that we can, we can, that we can have a, does that mean we can have a favorite little, a little hobby that we love to do when we get home? Does that mean we could have a favorite show that we just love to watch? We just love to watch and we can't wait till we can see it again. I'm guilty. Does it mean that we can have, have anything of our possession that we love more than, more than, more than the Lord? It says anything, anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Anyone. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Young men, young women, I'm talking 12 to 18, for a second even young, younger than that. Listen to me. The love of the world will cause the love of God to flee you faster than anything else. There is no playing with the world. There is no mixing with the world. There is not a single time that the world and Christ can coexist. It can't happen. How often do we want to look like the world? We want to sound like the world. We want to walk like the world. We want to dress like the world. We want to listen to the, what the world listens to. And we wonder why we don't feel empowered to walk a godly life. Why we're struggling with sin. It's because we love the world. Jesus said that the eye is the light, the, the light of the body. If the eyes are full of darkness, then the body will be full of darkness. And how great is that darkness? What is your eye on tonight? Is your eye on the world? After the fact that Christ paid the most precious price he could pay? I'll tell you, I fall short. So many times I'm finding myself in situations now where I'm having to crucify. I'm having to crucify things. Having to crucify things that I maybe even think are not things, but they could be things. Because I don't want to have any of the world. I want to have more of Christ. In Revelation 12, 11, scripture many of you are familiar with. 
They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now hold on a second. This is talking about a situation of martyrdom, it seems like to me. How could somebody be put in a situation where they didn't love their lives not to shrink back from death? Possibly, probably, absolutely because they were put in situations day in and day out where they did not love their lives more than anything else. Where they, they willingly laid down their lives for God's will. It says they overcame by the blood, of the, lamb, the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That word of your testimony is supposed to be continuing daily. It's supposed to be going on and going forth. That testimony should not have ended eight years ago when you got born again. But that testimony that is saving you should have been from yesterday and from today. How God is moving in your life today. What you got out of the word today. What God did today. How could you be saved by your testimony if it happened eight years ago? You're saved by your testimony if your testimony is ongoing. We need to open our eyes and examine our walks. I want to do my best to give something back to the Lord for all that He has done for me. I want to do my best, but honestly, what can we do? How could we repay Him? What could... What could make the Lord so happy? I mean, really, if you think about it, what, what can we do? If I, if I go and, you know, dedicate my whole life. I mean, even still, that is such a small return on what the Lord has already paid for me. How could we repay that? How could we do anything? How could we, how could we do... I want to talk a little bit about a, a, a tension between two truths. Turn with me to Acts 17, verse 24 through 25. Sometimes we so easily forget that God is who He really is. And we think that that the Lord needs something from us. We think that, you know, because Jesus paid that, that price on the cross, you know, now I owe him something, which you really do owe him something. I'm not telling you you don't. But we try to think that, that we can offer him our gifts and our strengths and our skills as if the Lord, the Lord needed it. It says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by, by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. The Lord of heaven and earth doesn't need your service. He doesn't need you to serve him with your hands. He doesn't need you to, to go out and work as hard as you can. He doesn't need it. Thinking about a, a familiar response to John the Baptist preaching. We're children of Abraham. What does, he, what, does he, what does John the Baptist say to them? He says, out of these very stones, God could raise children of Abraham. Think about that for a second. If you're not going to do what God is calling you to do, he'll raise up a stone to do what you do. God doesn't need a single one of us. He doesn't need what you think you have to offer. He's not buying what we're selling. God is not, God is not in the business of paying the most precious price in the world just for you to give what you think he needs. That's not God's business. Go to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. I don't want to go too far. But the Lord is questioning. You know, where's, where's the house you think you're going to build for me? Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Go to Psalm 50. 
Psalm 50, verse 7 through 12. It says, Hear, O people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and, every, and, and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Isn't that astounding? It kind of reminds me of, of, of Job wrestling Wrestling with the circumstance. Getting to the point where he's saying, no, 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 I'm righteous. God can't do this to the righteous. He won't do that to me. He won't do that. And he gets right to the point where he questions God and God, God answers right back at him. Where were you when I formed the heavens? Where were you when I laid down the foundations? Where were you when I, when I told the seas, you will come this far and you will not stop? Where were you? The Lord doesn't need anything from us. He is the Lord of glory. He is the one who dwells in heaven. He is the one who rules over earth. And he needs nothing from us. And yet, if you were to continue in Isaiah 66, 1, what does it say? That passage. Go to verse 2. Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That is to make you consider the greatness, the majesty, the vastness of our God. And then look straight at the lowest of the low. And realize that God's eye is on the lowest of the low. Because they are contrite in spirit and they tremble at his word. Not the one who thinks they can offer everything to him. 2 Samuel 23, verse 13 through 17. This has become one of my favorite stones lately. I'm sorry, go to 1 Samuel 15. We will go to 23 after this. 1 Samuel 15, 15 through 22. Let's start in verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we, were, we totally destroyed the, the rest. Stop! Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, although you were once contrite, although you once trembled at my word, although you were once poor in spirit, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took the sheep, the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and the heed, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Oh, come on, friends. It is so easy to sacrifice. It is so easy to come and sacrifice. It is so easy to go to church it is so easy to pray the right way. It is so easy to come and dance before the Lord. But that's not what he's after. 
The Lord is after your obedience. He's after those moments where you listen to him and you, you heed, you stop, because you tremble at his word. Those moments that the Lord speaks to you and you actually listen with the intent of, of doing. You shema. That is what the Lord is after. He's not after your sacrifices. He's not after what you can do for him. He's not after... It says that, that you, were, you who were once far away was brought near by the blood of Christ. The reason he shed that blood is so you can be near to him. So that your heart can be wrapped up in him with the intent of doing what he says because it pleases you the most. And you know it pleases him. It is so easy to make a sacrifice, but that's not what the Lord is after. The Lord wants a willing heart. A heart that wants to do all, all that they can to be obedient to him and to please him. share our last couple of scriptures. It's going to start in 2 Samuel 23. The question still stands. How could you repay the Lord? Is there anything you can do for Him? That price that was set, that blood that was costly, the most precious thing, the most precious thing in the universe, the blood of Jesus the Messiah shed for you. What are you going to do? 2 Samuel 23, verse 13. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam. While a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time... David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the, the well near the gate of Bethlehem. David's, David's thirsty, apparently. And he, makes, he just makes the statement, Oh, that someone would, would, would go get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. He didn't give a command. He didn't, he didn't, I mean, this is the king we're talking about. At that time, maybe he was the king. He's at a dullum, so probably not. But he was leader of these men. You, you, think, he you think he couldn't have just said, All right, buddy, Gamaliel, Abambola, Frank, go get me a drink of water. You think he could have done that? Yes, of Absolutely. And I think they would have done it. This reminds me of a story I was telling a friend about. Stories of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was pushing and pushing his empire past the point that no conqueror had ever gone before. He was going to conquer the entire world. He was bringing his kingdom to the furthest reaches of the known world. And he comes to a fortified stronghold. He comes to a fortified stronghold. And the king within that stronghold stood on the ramparts, looked down at Alexander and said, Alexander, might as well turn around because we will not surrender this city. We are well fortified. We have defended many armies coming through this way. We have repelled them. We've won. We are staying right where we are. We've built up our defenses to withstand siege for years. We will not lose to you. Alexander looks over at the, the king, the enemy king, and he says, I demand you surrender now. The king responds, no, Alexander. will not surrender. In case you didn't hear me, we know we can win. Our defenses are strong. Alexander responds one more time. I tell you to surrender now. The king responds. Alexander then takes a hundred of his best men. He looks over to his commander. 
takes a hundred of his best men, the, mo- the best trained, the best skilled, the best armed, and he orders them to march off of the cliff that was adjacent to the fortress. The men take the, the command, they form ranks, and begin to march off the cliff to their deaths. To that, Alexander the Great looks at the king. The king looks at Alexander and says, we will surrender. You see, David could have said, he could have, Alexander was, was such a warrior that he had the obedience of those men. Those men loved David so much that he could have, he could have said, I command you to go, but he didn't, did he? He made the statement, oh, oh, that I can get a drink of water from the gates of Bethlehem. Go to verse 16. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. These mighty men broke out through the middle of the night without a command, without any order issued, and they looked at each other and said, let's go do it. Let's give the king what he wants. Let's let's give him what he's after. And they risked it all. They risked their lives. They went behind enemy lines. Three men went behind enemy lines. Has anybody ever seen Saving Private Ryan? What were they like, at least seven, eight? Three men went behind enemy lines into the heart of the beast, into the pit of darkness. They went down into the snowy day, the, the, the pit on a snowy day after the lion. They rose up and said, let's give the king what he's after. Let's give him what he is pleased with. They brought it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Let me ask you a question. You think those mighty men were a little bit disappointed? Do you think after they you think after they they risk, risked it all to go behind enemy lines, even when the king didn't command them? They took the initiative. They went out. Could have faced certain death. And they brought this back to David, and he pours it out on the ground. Don't you think that David, don't you think that these men were a little disappointed after seeing that? Reminds me of a, reminds me of a message preached by my brother, Wasted Libations. Some of the Talmudic rabbis say that David poured it out as a libation before the Lord. I happen to think they weren't disappointed. I happen to think that after those men got before David and they brought him that cup of water, I think they walked a little bit taller that day, didn't they? I think they walked with a little bit of glory, a little bit of honor, a little bit of, of pep in their step because they risked it all came back and gave the king what he wanted. And I think the fact that he didn't drink it made them even more proud. Don't you think? That David considered that that water was so precious that he wouldn't drink it. David considered that their sacrifice was so great that he he couldn't. He couldn't do it because it was precious to him. So instead he poured it out before the Lord. Oh, come on now, folks. Sometimes, to get away from your empty way of life, you need to go out and do the most daring thing you can do for the king of kings, whether, he, whether you think he asked you to do it or not. Whether he commanded you to do it, or you just kind of think it would be pleasing to the king to, to do this. You need to go out and do it. Amen. You need to do it because it brings glory and honor to the king of kings, and it also brings that kind of glory that we're after. It gives us a chance to be esteemed in the Lord's sight. To go out and risk it all for the King of Kings. Now I'm not talking about 
going out and making rash vows, going out and making, uh, going out and doing ridiculous things without consulting the Lord. But what I'm telling you is sometimes you need to have the kind of faith that says, I am going to give the Lord what He wants, and I hope it is the hardest thing that I could possibly give Him, because I want to show Him that He's worth risking my life over, even if He consumes the offering or not. Come on now. What are you withholding from the Lord? What is the thing that you know you can do for Him? The thing that would be the most daring thing you can do, and yet you withhold it. I want to bring attention to the fact that David refused to drink it. Verse 17, he said, far, far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. He said, Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? I don't know about you, but I didn't hear about any bloodshed. Why did David say that? Why is David weighing this this blood of these men who went to risk their lives. I want, you to, I want to introduce you to a Hebrew word. We talked about 1 Peter 1, 18. Let's read that again. says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. See, that blood was precious. The Hebrew word I want to show you, I don't have it on the screen, but I'll give you Strong's number, is yakar. It is the cognate of this word. It's yakar. It's a yod, a kof, and a resh. Strong's number 3368. This word occurs 35 times in the Older Testament. It means valued, prized, esteemed. Something that is valued prized or esteemed, something that is costly. It occurs 35 times with its root, 3365, Strong's number 3365, Yaker, it occurs 11 times in the Older Testament. For a combined total of 46 times, one reference is a Messianic reference. In Isaiah 28, talking about how the cornerstone that will be laid is precious. One reference is to Israel, talking about how the sons of Israel are precious in God's sight. There are only two other references that talk about something being precious in God's sight. All of the other references have to do with things that men esteem as precious, like gold, silver, rubies, and whatnot. There are only two other references that refer to something that is precious in God's sight. Would you like to know what it is? Yes. Turn with me to Psalm 116. Start in verse 8. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death. Can anyone say amen to that? My eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay, I said, all men are liars. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? Listen to that again. How could I repay the Lord 
for all his goodness to me. How could I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. What's the next verse say? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. There is only one, sorry, two references that have to do with something being precious in the sight of the Lord in all of the Bible. Even the Greek cognate has to do with gold and silver. The only things that are precious in God's sight are the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb, Israel, His Messiah, and your death. The word saints is chassid, His godly ones. His pious ones, his saintly ones, the ones that are following after him, precious in the sight of the Lord is the, the death of his saints. The other reference is in Psalm 72, verse 15. It's talking about the poor and the needy. It says, He will rescue them from oppression and violence. For precious is their blood in his sight. Oh, come on now, y'all. The thing that the, that the Lord finds as precious is our death. Our death to ourselves. Our death to this world is the thing that the Lord esteems. The thing he values. The thing he prizes the most. What can you repay to the Lord? You can die to yourself every day. You can give the Lord what He wants the most, and that is your death. What can you give in exchange for your soul? Jesus asked us, what can a man give for exchange for his soul? Well, there's really not a lot of things we can do for the Lord, but we can give Him one thing that, it, that He esteems, that He prizes, and that is your death. Come on, that is your death. What are, we, are, what are we withholding from the Lord? Are we going to withhold the one thing that he prizes? The one thing that we can see in all of the word that he esteems, are we going to withhold that from him? No. But instead, like those three mighty men, we need to risk it all. We need to die to ourselves every day. Come on up, Peyton. I don't know about you guys, but in my Christianity, I get, to, I get to a certain point where I begin to feel empty again. It's because of the way, and I don't mean the, the good empty, the wreck that we've learned to be about where we empty ourselves. I mean the empty that comes from taking in my old empty way of life. I can only go so far and I start to feel empty. And then I need to ask the Lord, Lord, what is the next daring thing I can do for you? Because you paid the costliest price. You gave me something that was precious. You spilled out your blood for me. What can I do for you? Kind of brings new light to the, the verse that says, you have not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood. In what areas of our lives do we need to go out? Whether or not we get the command or not, whether or not we, we just kind of faintly hear that the Lord might want this, what can we do? Amen. What can we do for Him? We can die to ourselves. When will we stop withholding from Him the one thing that is precious to Him? When can we stop withholding the one thing that's precious to Him day in and day out? In our daily lives, there's something you can give that He finds value in, and that is your death. Would you please stand?
Galatians 6.14 says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Through that beautiful exchange, that price that was paid for you, you can respond in such a way that pleases him, that is precious in his sight. And that is by being crucified with Christ. I want with everything in me to be pleasing to the Lord. I want with all that is in me to give him the one thing that he's find, that he finds pleasing, and that is my death every day. Ask a question. What are you boasting in day in and day out? What is your claim to fame? Are you crucified to the world and the world crucified to you? Was there still an attachment there? Are there still little Moabites and little Ammonites running around in your field trying to entice you to come and spend time with them? Tonight is the night to bring before the Lord the things of the world that you have been consuming the things of the world that have been eating your joy, the things of the world that have been eating at you. Tonight is the night. Mighty God, we lift up our hands to you.